Welcome back to Bell's Library. I'm your host, Bell, exploring the intersection of current events, media, and pop culture, although today I'll be covering some very different material from my original plan. After Jeff Merkley, junior Democratic senator from Oregon, attempted to visit a Brownsville, Texas detention center for immigrant children and youth last weekend, I decided to reach out to him as a constituent, as well as a sort of budding journalist. I got in touch with his state communications director, who said she was more than happy to have me email her my questions. I did so, but the news has moved so fast this week that many of those questions were answered by mainstream news media before she got a chance to get back to me. However, on Thursday night, I received an email media advisory about a press conference. I've never been to a press conference before, but I jumped at the chance, and it was quite an experience. I have so much information to share, I'll be releasing more material later this week. For now, though, I'll address the highlights of the press conference and then go deeper into some of the issues raised by the policy of family separation of immigrants and refugees. Senator Merkley arranged to visit Sheridan Federal Prison, Oregon's only federal prison, along with Oregon Senator Ron Wyden, Congresswoman Suzanne Bonamici of Oregon's 1st District, and Congressman Earl Blumenauer of Oregon's 3rd District. 123 asylum seekers are currently being held at Sheridan Prison under an interagency agreement between ICE and the Bureau of Prisons. As the ACLU of Oregon explained on Friday, the Oregon detainees, all men, are among the 1,600 immigrants marked for expedited deportation that the Trump administration sent to federal prisons in five states in an unprecedented move last week. The Oregon congressional delegation spoke with several of the detainees via translators, and they also spoke with prison staff this afternoon. Representatives of the media were invited to a press conference after the congressional delegation's visit to the prison, but press is not allowed on prison grounds, so the press conference took place outdoors, at the entrance to prison property. I apologize for the poor sound quality, which was largely due to wind and occasional traffic. Senator Merkley spoke first, emphasizing the general uncertainty felt by all the detainees, saying that they're basically in limbo, not knowing what's going on. Uh, we had, uh, a lot of folks uh, express how difficult it is for them to connect to family members and for those who had children to be able to connect to children. Uh, they didn't know where to call. Uh, they, uh, uh, in some cases, couldn't make calls because they, the prison charges money and they weren't able to tell us how much it costs, interestingly, from the, uh, the, the administration's point of view. I couldn't get an answer to that. I don't know if my colleagues did. Uh, the, um, uh, there is apparently a free number to call the Office of Refugee Relocation, uh, but they had not received instructions in their language on how to use that number, so that had not been accessible. And just general, uh, part of the confusion is a lack of translators to explain uh, what is what is going on for them. I find it inexplicable that prison administration could not or would not answer the question of how much a phone call costs to make from the prison. I admit to not being an expert on these matters, but it seems that contacting a lawyer, at the very least, should not cost a prisoner money. There should be no impediment to a prisoner's basic right to legal counsel. Merkley goes on to address a letter sent by Lisa Hay, the federal public defender appointed to these detainees by the Ninth Circuit. She has so far been able to speak with only about half of the 123 immigrants, and she is particularly concerned about the detainees' lack of time outside their cells, poor food quality, inability to access medical care, and lack of communication with their families. On Thursday afternoon, Senator Merkley tweeted, Spoke to Sessions today. Not encouraging. Now I'm headed back to the border, and this time I'm bringing friends. Follow along on Sunday for a hashtag Father's Day of Action with at Chris Van Hollen, at 
rep Philemon Vella, at Peter Welch, at David Cicilline, at rep Mark Pocan, and at rep Gonzalez. So he was taking a big delegation down there with him, but as we will see, Senator Wyden will not be joining him. Merkley then turns the mic over to Senator Wyden. Thank you, Senator Merkley. And let me just pick up with a few points. First, what we saw over the last hour demonstrates that the Trump zero tolerance policy makes zero sense and shows zero understanding of American values. I decided to stay home tomorrow because I am going to have a meeting with a group of the lawyers for the detainees. And I can tell you, we saw plenty over the last hour that I think the detainees are going to feel, excuse me, the lawyers for the detainees are going to feel very strongly about picking up. At this point, a truck drove by, making the audio almost inaudible, so I'll quote what Wyden said next. I will tell you, I'm walking away with a sense that on a number of the key issues, the detainee rights are rights in name only. There really was, for example, no rhyme or reason to who might be able to make a phone call. At one point, we were told that people had been given information about lawyers, but it was in their clothes, and their clothes had been taken away from them, so in effect, there was no way to contact lawyers. Same was true with respect to phone calls. We were told that the detainees had rights to make phone calls, but then people said, well, we don't have any money, we can't make the uh, phone calls. So there was this uh, pattern of rights that sure feel more like rights in name only than the rights that you associate As the wind picks up, Wyden goes on to explain that they spoke with detainees who say they have families. He says, one of them had a child and was separated from that child who was only a year and a half old. Now, tomorrow is Father's Day. All over Oregon, families are going to be grateful to be able to come together, appreciate the love of family members, and what we heard today is essentially this grotesque Trump policy. This grotesque Trump treatment means that, in effect, the detainees are largely lumped together and then dumped in a prison, as one of them said specifically to me, because that we established a report that he was essentially incommunicado. Those were his words, not mine. So I'll just close by way of saying, first of all, I appreciate Senator Merkley taking the lead on this. America and Oregon are better than this. We are better than this. We've always had in America a system where we examine the specifics 
of an individual circumstance, look at the case, there's an allegation of law-breaking, we follow that up, but we don't just lump and dump, and that is my sense of what this policy is all about. Next to speak was Congresswoman Suzanne Bonamici, who represents Yamhill County, where a Sheridan prison is located. Being here today, but I want to join people from across the country who are speaking up and saying this Trump Sessions zero tolerance policy makes absolutely no sense, and it is not what we stand for as the United States of America. We are here today at a federal prison. This is a prison where people go after they've been convicted of a crime, or when they've been accused of a crime and they're awaiting trial. The people we spoke with here today are people who are fleeing violence. They're fleeing persecution. They are fearing for their lives, and they're coming to the country to ask for asylum. What they should be getting is a hearing and an opportunity to present their case. And that is not what's happening. They're here in this federal prison being treated like they're prisoners, when in fact they need to have that opportunity to talk to lawyers and make their case. And I tell you, as a parent, listening to the fathers talk about not knowing where their young children are, not knowing where their spouse or partner is, not knowing when they can talk to a lawyer, when they can get medical care, is just devastating and completely unacceptable. Now, some of the stories we heard today caused me great concern. We spoke with a man who had been shot in his home country. He showed us where the bullets had hit him. He has not been able to get medical care here. We spoke with people who said, we flew, uh, we left our country, we left uh, religious persecution to try to find a better life, but we're going crazy in here because we spent so much time in this cell, they won't let us out for more than an hour or so a day. That is not great. That's not what we stand for as America. We talked to some gentlemen who said, we were told if we don't sign these deportation papers, we're going to be here in this prison for five years. That was a threat that was given to them. And when I asked these gentlemen here today, what do you think will happen to you when you go back to your home country? Almost every one of them said, we will be killed. We will literally die because of what they're fleeing. Uh, and so today, I want to say the Trump Sessions policy is not right. Congressman Earl Blumenauer spoke next. Unfortunately, only some of the recording was usable at this point due to bad audio. You can see those people are in distress. 
some of them had wounds. The notion that we're going to criminalize being persecuted, and we're going to try and force it by yanking children from their family and sending them God in his way. It's important. And I don't care whether you're a Republican or Democrat, what you think about immigration, whether we've got too much or not enough. Nobody should treat children. And they each ought to have a chance to prove their case. That's the law. Not phony stuff that Trump makes up. I kept thinking about my grandkids. Under six. What would happen to them if their parents' life were at risk to take a journey of hundreds and in some cases thousands of miles to have them subject? It's incomprehensible. It ought to be incomprehensible. As you can hear, Congressman Blumenauer got choked up and had to stop speaking for a few moments. At this point, Senator Merkley asked for questions. A lot of the audio here is unusable due to wind, but Senator Wyden says at one point that the outcry over family separation is really paying off. Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, basically said he didn't want to have anything to do with the policy of separating kids from their families. Suzanne Bonamici, Senator Merkley, and Senator Wyden close out with a few additional comments. I want to add, too, that the American Pediatric Association has spoken out because of the, what could be very long-term psychological damage to these children when they're separated from their parents. And these children, regardless of what anybody in the administration thinks of their parents, these are innocent children. And we are uh, penalizing children for their parents trying to find a better life and make a better life for them. That is uh, something that is extremely serious. Uh, and I am also going to be continuing to speak out. Thank Senator Merkley for really leading this effort and, and shining a light on it. Because I think uh, the more the public learns, the more concerned they are. And I'm not a biblical scholar, but I have to say that what we saw today and what is happening in this administration is not condoned by anything in the Bible. And I, I really appreciate that. I think the American Academy of Pediatrics. They use the term irreparable harm. That's what's being inflicted on our children, irreparable harm. We know the stress on parents, and I, many of you will have heard about the father from Honduras who a month ago was separated from his small child and his wife who committed suicide, Mr. Martin Onyes. There were other pieces of information I was not able to get a usable recording of, but I took notes immediately after the event. I also had trouble getting the videos I'd taken to play with any audio, and I was concerned that I wouldn't be able to use them. So I set up an audio recording on the way home to recount what I'd learned during the press conference, along with my reactions. It's fairly long, and I've covered a lot of the material here already, but I do plan to release the majority of that as a sort of bonus episode later this week, so please look out for that. Here's a small sample, and I apologize for the noise in the background. It's okay to love these children. It's okay if a child is sobbing and crying. Instead of telling them, get over it, or you're okay, you'll be fine. 
it's okay to pick them up, put them in your lap, and snuggle them close. And it breaks my heart to hear that these people are being told you may not touch this two and a half year old or this two year old child who is screaming crying for her mother. You may not allow these elementary school age siblings to hug each other. I was referring to a couple of news stories that surfaced within the last couple of days. On Friday morning, NPR's Morning Edition ran a segment titled, Doctors Concerned About Irreparable Harm to Separated Migrant Children. Two stories from that report particularly haunted me. I was contacted by several pediatricians in the area who were really concerned. Colleen Kraft is president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. At the urging of her colleagues, Kraft flew to Texas and visited a shelter in the Rio Grande Valley, where she saw a young girl in tears. She couldn't have been more than two years old, just crying and pounding and having a huge, huge temper tantrum. And this child was just screaming and nobody could help her. And we know why she was crying. She didn't have her mother. She didn't have her parent who could soothe her and comfort her and take care of her. Kraft says the staff at the facility told her that federal regulations prevented them from touching or holding the child to soothe her. Shelter managers and other experts say there is no such rule. But Kraft says the confusion is just one reason why these shelters are not the right place for young children. This is appalling to me, that a child, a toddler, could be in the middle of such a crisis and no one could go to her and even touch her. It's almost worse, however, if you do not even allow children to comfort each other. Antar Davidson worked for Southwest Key, a nonprofit that operates more than two dozen shelters for migrant children from Texas to California. He quit this week because he says the shelter where he worked in Tucson, Arizona, didn't have the trained staff to handle the influx of younger, more traumatized children. The breaking point for Davidson came when he says he was asked to tell two siblings, ages 6 and 10, that they couldn't hug each other. They called me over the radio and they wanted me to translate to these kids that the rule of the shelter is that they are not allowed to hug. And these are kids that had just been separated from their mom, basically just huddling and hugging each other in a desperate attempt to remain together. Southwest Key says they have a clear policy that allows touching and hugging in certain circumstances. Both of these stories tell me that one of two things is going on. Either the caregivers on staff at the detention centers are mistaken about the policy, which speaks to poor communication and a lack of adequate training, or center management is not being truthful and these centers really do have a no-touching policy. Either way, touching children is not against state regulations and enforcing a no-touching policy is professional malpractice at best and deliberate cruelty at worst. I find it doubtful that caregivers working directly with children would be deliberately cruel. But the way things are going in our society lately, I wonder if I'd be at all surprised to see Dolores Umbridge herself on staff at detention centers for immigrant children. I'd like to take us back to the library for a while using the Dewey Decimal System to search the shelves for 155.4, Child Psychology. Let's take a closer look at how trauma affects young children and how we can best care for children who have been affected by trauma. Since I seriously doubt these best practices are being followed at detention centers for minors or that anyone on staff is trained in dealing with child trauma. As I have mentioned before, I teach preschool in a child care center at a community college. We have a mixed-age classroom with children ranging in age from two and a half to five years old. A couple years ago, my school had a staff training in which we studied a selection from a book called Reaching and Teaching Children Exposed to Trauma by Barbara Sorrells, EDD. 
I'd like to take a look at Chapter 3 of this book, The Effect of Trauma on Relationships. Soros believes that self-esteem, self-confidence, and trust are all vital to a child's development of an internal working model of the social world. But children who have experienced trauma or maltreatment may believe themselves unlovable and deserving of poor treatment, carrying with them a great sense of shame rather than positive self-esteem. These children do not expect to get their needs met, and they do not expect to receive warmth or affection. As a result, they may find it difficult to accept these things when they are offered. Maltreated children may also lack self-confidence, which interferes with their ability to, quote, venture out into the world with confidence and curiosity, end quote. They instead see themselves as incompetent, flawed, and ineffective at getting their basic needs met. They may be afraid to try new things and will approach tasks with a defeatist attitude. Sorrell says that, quote, Finally, a negative internal working model undermines the child's capacity to trust in the goodness and availability of others and to believe that the world is a safe place. The capacity to trust is the foundation of mental health and allows the child to live with a sense of hope and optimism and invest his energies in exploration and mastery of his environment. However, when neglect, abuse, and trauma erode the capacity to trust, the child lives in a constant state of aloneness and isolation. She arrives in childcare unable to accept affection and care. Relationships are viewed with suspicion and fear, and attempts to reach out to her may elicit seemingly irrational responses, such as averting her eyes or literally pulling away from an embrace. She may run, act silly, or become aggressive toward the person trying to connect. Fear drives the behavior, not rudeness or defiance. Maltreated children have a tendency to switch off all feelings of vulnerability as a way of self-protection. Emotions become blunted and there is a dullness of the soul often reflected in the eyes. Trust can only develop in the absence of fear. The two are incompatible, End quote. This description seems hauntingly familiar when we think of the children separated from their parents and locked away in detention centers. These children have suffered severe damage to their ability to trust and likely to their self-esteem and self-confidence as well. What must they think they have done to deserve this treatment? What does that do to a child's self-concept and worldview? What's worse, we are continuing to re-traumatize and re-harm these children every passing day that they are subject to impersonal care and policies in detention. The chapter's introduction states, quote, The ability to influence the behavior of a child is directly proportional to the strength of the attachment that a caregiver has with that child. Children who have been harmed in the context of a relationship can only be healed in a relationship. It's about changing a child's heart not just the behavior, and this will never happen without a relationship of trust and unconditional acceptance. Yuri Bronfenbrenner, the renowned developmental psychologist, once said that every child needs to know that there is someone who is absolutely crazy about him, that he is the apple of someone's eye. He needs to have a relationship with at least one adult who takes great delight in meeting his needs. Children who are afforded such a relationship come to believe that they are lovable and worthy of care. However, this fundamental birthright has been stolen from those who have suffered maltreatment. When children are abused, neglected, shamed, or humiliated, they don't think, what's wrong with these adults? Instead, they think, what's wrong with me? End quote. The two-year-old child who doesn't know where her mother is reminds me of the young children, barely older than her, who enter my classroom for the first time. It's often difficult for them to say goodbye to parents for the first time, and I've often sat on the floor next to a screaming, sobbing child who pounds at the glass door, watching a parent walk away. If the child allows, I offer gentle touches, a hand on the shoulder, rubbing or patting their back, or inviting them to sit in my lap. It can take time, 
But as the child feels safe and welcomed in the classroom, they gradually shorten the amount of time crying each day until they can happily hug and kiss mommy or daddy goodbye and then run off to play with their friends. It's still very hard in the beginning, and it may be even harder for the parent who has had to walk away from their child. They know, however, that they will be back in just a few hours, and I can always reassure the child that mommy or daddy will be back to get them at the end of their school day. Not only can no one reassure migrant children in detention that they will see their family soon, but many will not even provide the simplest comfort in a mistaken belief that touch is not allowed or is inadvisable. I suspect that some of this stems from a fear of inappropriate touch, but it has been taken much too far when it's deemed safest not to touch at all. I received my master's in elementary education, and while a caring and attentive attitude toward all students was emphasized, we were cautioned against too much touch. Hugs might be okay if approved by school policy, but only if initiated by a child, and even then, side hugs were considered much safer and more appropriate. This is especially true for male teachers and caregivers who tend to be viewed with suspicion if they act overly familiar or nurturing. When I began teaching preschool at the community college and working closely with faculty, however, I was encouraged to be appropriately physical with children. It's perfectly okay to allow a small child to sit on your lap, to offer hugs and snuggles when needed, and sitting next to a child's cot and stroking their hair at rest time not only helps them fall asleep, it very quickly establishes an important bond of trust. I had a small boy with an exuberant personality and a reluctance to follow rules drastically change his response to me once I started sitting with him at nap time every day. He stopped saying no when I asked him to do something, and he started seeking me out to play with him, running to give me a hug every morning when he arrived. Building a relationship with a child is absolutely crucial to being a teacher or caregiver, and the importance of touch in building such relationships should not be underestimated. In fact, Barbara Sorrells reminds us that, quote, touch is critical to human life. Without adequate amounts of it in the early days of life, babies will literally die. Babies who are lovingly caressed and gently held in the earliest weeks and months of life come to know and understand that they are deeply wanted, loved, and worthy of tender care, end quote. Touch remains important as children grow older. According to Sorrells, touch is important throughout childhood and remains one of the primary ways we connect with children. Nurturing touch communicates a sense of safety and is an important component of a healing relationship. Hugs, high fives, pats on the back, and hand on the shoulder are intentional forms of touch that send messages of affirmation and acceptance so desperately needed by children who have been harmed. Sorrels also suggests communicating acceptance and worth to a child by greeting them by name every day, giving them a place to store their belongings labeled with their name and photo, displaying photos of the child and their families on the walls, displaying the child's work, and noticing and promoting their interests when selecting activities and materials for the child to use. Having seen some of the photos of the Casa Padre Center in Brownsville, Texas, I noticed that code hooks are labeled A, B, C, D rather than with the child's name. Each child has a wristband with a barcode that is scanned at mealtimes. This may be more convenient for a center that deals with a high number of detained children, but it depersonalizes their experience and thus dehumanizes them. That's why the numbers tattooed on the arms of Jews in Nazi concentration camps were so horrifying. It was a way of denying their identity or their humanity. How can children, even older children as in the Brownsville Center, believe that they are valued or worth anything if we don't even care to acknowledge their basic identities or their fundamental needs? It's not enough to provide food, clothing, and a place to sleep. The children at Casa Padre are boys and teens ages 10 to 17. They receive two hours of time outside every day, one of those hours in structured activities such as Tai Chi and one hour of free time. I'm unsure what is available for outdoor recreation, though. Is there any grass or plant life or just concrete? Is there sports equipment? Any other toys or games? 
News reports say that they have access to movies and video games, but screen time is no substitute for creatively stimulating play and activities. These boys also receive education, primarily history lessons. I'm unsure exactly what this consists of, but there are reports of presidential murals and quotes throughout the facility. A few pictures have aired on news shows, but the one widely circulated online is the first one seen in the facility near the cafeteria. A simplistic painting of Donald Trump with the phrase, Sometimes by losing the battle you find a new way to win the war, in both English and Spanish. Other murals show Barack Obama and Ulysses S. Grant and other presidents. But what must it be like to see the Trump mural every time you go to eat? What does that quote mean to the boys who see it every day? And are all the propaganda and history lessons at all effective? How do they feel about the nation that has incarcerated them and kept them from their families? How do they feel about the president who ordered this new policy? Truthfully, many of the boys at the Casa Padre facility in particular did arrive in the U.S. as unaccompanied minors. However, the administration's new zero-tolerance policy separated nearly 2,000 children from their parents in the first six weeks alone. And shelters such as Casa Padre are straining to accommodate the influx of new child detainees. We now have reports that a tent city is currently being erected in Tornillo, Texas. As of Friday evening, June 15th, the first children are expected to spend the night there. On Friday, the temperature in Tornillo reached nearly 100 degrees. I understand that these tents each have air conditioners. However, I'm unsure how effective those will be. It's only the beginning of summer. And if hundreds of children are expected to be incarcerated in these tents in rapidly rising temperatures, I can't help but feel it's only a matter of time before we see widespread cases of heat stroke and heat exhaustion. God forbid it's probably only a matter of time before somebody dies from heat. For those of you who are outraged, concerned, and driven to take some kind of real action to stop the injustices happening before our eyes, there are things you can do. First of all, if you live in Oregon, you can drive out to Sheridan Federal Prison yourself for a vigil to be held on Monday at 5.30 p.m. If you're unable to participate in that, there are other actions you can take. At Families Belong on Twitter regularly posts information about rallies and action items. You can also call your senator, especially if you are represented by a Republican, to ask that they co-sponsor Senate Bill 3036, which would bar parents from being separated from their children at the border. And be sure to follow me, at Bell Resist, on Twitter for more, including announcements when this podcast updates. I'll also be posting a few photos from Saturday's press conference. Thank you for tuning in. When I decided to start this podcast, it was originally going to be a bit more lighthearted in tone, hence the title, Bell's Library and it would focus far more on the pop culture side of things than it has so far. This week's events have been important enough to demand in-depth coverage, however, but hopefully I'll be able to continue talking about the subject of trauma and get to the long-promised discussion of PTSD in Jessica Jones, either next week or the following week. Regardless, you can expect a new episode soon. I'll be updating with more of my post-press conference commentary later this week, and next weekend I should have at least a short episode which will focus on the history of internment and concentration camps, and whether these terms can appropriately be used to refer to the detention centers and tent cities being set up for immigrant children. In the meantime, stay safe, take care of each other, and remember... Now I'm wiser but unsure